Welcome to the RX podcast. My name is Luke and I'm the newly appointed Executive Director of RX. I'm very pleased to be joined by some of our senior colleagues from our research team who will be looking at the five priority areas where RX will be supporting our members in 2023. After this session, stay tuned for an update from the RX news team about the latest top loss events. First of all, before we dive into the discussion, I'll quickly introduce my colleagues who you'll hear from on this podcast. Uh, first of all, Steve, our Director of Research and Information. Hi, Luke. Sarah, our Head of Risk Measurement. Hi, Luke. Matt, our Head of Risk Management. Hi, Luke. And finally, Helen, our Head of Services. Hi, Luke. Okay, so I, I think maybe turning to you, first of all, Steve, perhaps you can give us a high-level summary of those five priority areas. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Luke. I think really... From the extensive discussions that we've had with our members over the last few months, I think I can summarise probably some of the key priorities that we're hearing from them and we're hearing really across the globe. It's by no means an exhaustive list, but I think it sort of summarises what we're really hearing from the majority is their priority activities. I think number one, they're really focusing on developing their sort of overall strategy for operational and non-financial risk management, really looking ahead to the next sort of three to five years. Digitalization is massively changing the structure of financial services, uh, so the way products are sold, marketed, delivered, etc. And, and this is also really changing the risk profile. What we're seeing is this requiring risk teams to consider how they best support the business, how they actively enable this change to happen at pace, how they adapt to new business models, uh, and really partnering with the business, while also trying to help manage the risks and controls in an optimal fashion ensuring their services are resilient and also ensuring that the firm's reputation stays intact. Number two, I think a second area is is really for our members is understanding the complex and and interconnected risk landscape. Digitalization, as I've mentioned, but along with also the geopolitical and and macroeconomic challenges that are being faced means that the risk teams really need to understand and be on top of current risks as well as looking to the future. What emerging threats or opportunities are coming that may change the profile and how do their businesses need to react? That leads me probably nicely into the third area. Over the last few years, the number one top risk reported has been cyber and it still continues to be by some way. In 2023, there's ongoing efforts uh, across our membership to continue to work on enhancing the management of cyber, learning from their peers to understand the risk more uh, and really starting to develop practice together and accelerate the the sort of practices in that space. Four, uh, I think, is the ongoing enhancement of wider risk management and measurement practices. As I mentioned earlier, across financial services, efforts are underway to optimise practice, to drive efficiency, to leverage data, to measure risks more effectively, particularly those more prominent risks and to get to grips with actively supporting the business to navigate the environment. And as part of the optimization activity, we're really seeing a massive acceleration in firms moving to standardize their control environment, as well as developing consistent indicators to allow the effective monitoring of risks and controls. And the need for industry standards, references and benchmark just continues to grow. The fifth, but definitely not the the last area by any stretch of the imagination, is the need as part of all of this to innovate. Risk teams also have the opportunity to use digital techniques, new technology and data to enhance the way that they manage risk, to help derive insights, to help benchmark themselves. And this is a priority, but it's also a challenge. The risk teams getting access to the right technologies at the right prices 
access to the right development of data skills and the understandable sort of challenge of procurement process are all challenges that we hear our members trying to overcome as they move along this journey. Fantastic. Thanks, Steve. Just kicking off maybe with that first area, I'm particularly interested in that, which is building out a longer term strategy for the discipline. What are we going to be doing this year uh, to support our members as they develop that view? We're going to take a step back this year and sort of revisit some work that we did in 2016-17 when we looked at the future of operational risk, and which seems like a really long time ago after the last few years I think we've all had. We, we saw the demise of the AMA, the change in regulation, and at that point we wanted to understand what the, the future of the operational risk discipline was. That was six, seven years ago now, and I think with the acceleration of digitalization, the COVID pandemic and what that's done to businesses, the sort of shift to look to optimize risk management, to, to actively support the business. And I think probably all our members would, would absolutely agree. We've seen a huge rise in prominence in terms of the operational and non-financial risk within an organization. It's a really significant topic at board meetings, executive level significant time and effort is being devoted to understanding and managing the risks. And it it therefore feels like the right time to, as I say, take that step back and and look at what is the three to five year agenda going to look like. So to do that, we're going to be working with heads of non-financial risk, chief risk officers, having a number of conversations across the industry to really sort of understand the strategic direction, take that on board and help play that back to the membership and the wider industry to really help develop and, and set that agenda for our members. I'll be looking forward to the outcome from some of that work. Just moving on to point two in that that list of priorities and actually picking up on that active risk management theme, one part of which is really understanding the rapidly changing risk landscape. What we've done already at OREX, we've recently released our top risk review looking at the material risks, which is a survey where we collect the views of as many members as possible, collate those and put them into a, a kind of ranking so people can compare that to their own understanding. In addition, early next quarter, we'll be releasing our annual risk horizon report, which is a bit of a longer term view about the changes to the landscape that looks at emerging risks that are likely to emerge over the next few years. So based on those two things, turning to you, Matt, what, what trends are we seeing, particularly in the top risk review, and what might we expect to see in that Horizon report? Thanks, Luke. Um, so I'll talk about both of them in turn. So we'll talk about top risk first. In terms of the headlines from our most recent top risk review, we're seeing a continuing turbulent risk landscape, which is increasing external pressures on our member firms. And we see that cyber risk remains a key focus. Our member organisations are prioritising active monitoring of cyber threats and risk managers are recognising the need to drive firm-wide awareness around cyber resilience. Another thing that we've identified in our top risk review is that a new wave of regulatory proposals and heightened supervisory scrutiny in the ESG space is contributing to climate risk being a higher focused agenda for our member firms. In addition, we're also finding that our top risks are becoming increasingly interconnected. This is being driven by a current climate of rapid change and digital transformation. For our Horizon Risk Report, as Luke mentioned, this report asks our member firms to identify what they consider to be the key emerging risks over the next few years. Our survey for this report recently closed and the team are now hard at work analysing the results. And our initial findings indicate that advancing cybercrime 
remains the principal emerging risk category by a significant margin. Other key emerging risks also include business service disruption, technology and digital strategy, and also climate risk. The team's going to continue to study these findings and analyse the results, and we look forward to publishing the full report in the second quarter of this year. Thanks, Matt. Um, Helen, as our new head of services, one of the things you have responsibility for is our Eurex Cyber Service. So can you give us a flavour of what to expect in that service this year, particularly around those things that our members are likely to be focusing on? Sure. Thanks, Luke. And yet, cyber risk remains a key focus for our members and subscribers. It's been a topic of discussion throughout 2022, and a key theme has been the need for collaboration and sharing of information. For example, we're about to publish our study on cyber scenarios, which has been conducted with our cyber service subscribers and leveraged some of the expertise from our scenario service to assist with the increase in focus on cyber. It highlights the vital importance and reliance of subject matter experts as part of the process and the key importance of data quality and availability. Part of the reason we set up the cyber service was to help the industry learn from peers, share good practice and problem solve. And that includes sharing event data so the industry can learn and evolve in the same way as we have with operational risk data for some years. Thanks very much, Helen. Interesting stuff. So just moving on to point four now, which which is quite a broad one, the enhancement of risk management and risk measurement practices. This is really, really important because a lot of what we're talking about before is new stuff, but it's really, really hard to find the time and the space to do anything innovative if you are continually running an inefficient process for everyday risk management. So quite a lot of this work is about making that baseline risk management activity much more efficient. We'll look at measurement first and then management. So I'll first of all turn to Sarah, Head of Risk Measurement at OREX. Can you tell us what's on the agenda for 2023 in your area, please? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Luke. So picking up on Steve's point four, we're definitely hearing from firms that there's a need to enhance practice and to to optimise use of resources and to understand how to use risk measurement outputs to better support risk management going forwards. I'd say there's an acknowledgement that firms need to better measure their risk for the purpose of better understanding their risk in order to be able to better manage those risks. So one of the ways we'll be looking to support our members with this will be through our analytics community, which of course has a a long-standing reputation for providing a voice to the industry and for really having that industry impact. Picking up again on on one of Steve's earlier points, and, and others have mentioned it as well, of the complex, these new and existing risks that firms are facing, one of the things that we'll be focusing on through this community activity will be how do we really quantify some of those key, those really challenging risks like cyber and like climate. We'll also be focusing on stress testing design and methodology, where there's currently a really huge range of practice, very little alignment between jurisdictions. So we'll be looking to provide analytical leadership on this through our working groups. Fantastic. Thanks, Sarah. Um, Just turning to Matt, uh, what's on the agenda for this year? Where are you particularly looking to support our members? In terms of this year in risk management, we'll be primarily focusing our efforts through two of our working groups. Our risk management working group has uh, recently launched and we'll be working in the first half of this year on a project on risk appetite. Our other major working group, the Operational Resilience Working Group, will be hosting quarterly sessions during 2023. Our current proposed list of topics include setting impact tolerances, investment plans for operational resilience, 
and looking at the levels of regulatory alignments across regions. Just changing topics slightly, talking about standards. Steve, you mentioned earlier that, that we're seeing the industry move to develop and improve standards and particularly through 2022 what we saw was controls and indicators are becoming an increasingly large focus. Um, Some of this is related to efficiencies as we mentioned earlier but some of it is also related to that broader digitalization of the risk management function. So last year we launched our control reference library a structured set of uh, 761 control types all of those aligned against our event taxonomy. And the idea is that it gives you a a really good structural basis for understanding your control environment. Uh, We're building on that this year with a library of risk indicators. But just for the benefit of the listeners, Steve, do you want to give a a quick overview of what you can expect to get with the risk indicator library and what you would do with it as well? So in 2019-20, we published the reference risk taxonomy. 2022, we published, as you said, the reference uh, control library. And we're now developing the ORX Reference Indicator Library. Probably next on the agenda will be the Reference Process Library, which we'll look to to work on next year. So in terms of the Indicator Library, as with all our standards, it will be being developed using member data, or I should say it is because it's underway. Uh, And we're also using a a member advisory panel. Uh, Really pleased to say we're partnered with Oliver Wyman on the Indicator Library work as well. So they're helping us to develop the product. It should be available to members around about May time and likely to non-members in, in September. So expect something in around three or four months time. Is there anything that people can access now if they're particularly interested in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. So all, all the standards that we've already done that I've just mentioned are on our, our members' website and that they're also available to, to non-members to buy and you can visit the ORX website to find them. But also through both the development of the taxonomy and the control library and the indicators piece, we've also in parallel looked at practices and sort of development. So there's papers on control practices and also on indicator practices. And in fact, we've just published a short paper, which is the seven top tips around enhancing your indicators process. Thanks all. Really, really useful information. That leaves us our final point of focus, which looked at risk management innovation. I think I'll cover that when everyone has spoken. As financial services become much more digital, we're hearing more and more that the risk management teams are having to digitalise the way that they do risk management, uh, partly to keep up with the rapid pace of change, partly for efficiencies that we've referenced earlier. But doing that is extremely hard. You've got to find the right solution. You've got to be comfortable with that. You've got to navigate potential third-party legal contracts. You've got to do data mapping exercises, and you may need to integrate that technology into your ecosystem. So all of those things are a challenge and a potential drain on both time and budget. So for this reason, we think that innovation is hard. And this is precisely why ORX is launching IDP. This stands for Innovation Data Platform. It's a first of a kind digital platform for a new generation of those digital risk management applications that will help the risk management function digitalize how they manage risk. IDP brings these risk applications and your data together in one secure space. It's really been designed specifically to lower all of those barriers to entry that I just talked about, which we think will foster innovation in a way that we've not seen so far. So look out for IDP in communications from ORX. 
it's really quite a significant step forward for OREX and for our members into a world of digital operational risk management. Many thanks for listening. As always, go onto our website, www.orx.org, for more information. Stay tuned for an update from the OREX news team about the latest top loss events. And see you on the next podcast. Hello and welcome. My name is Lily Richardson. I'm the OREX News Manager. And in case you haven't heard of OREX News, we're a subscription service from OREX, which covers publicly reported operational risk loss events in the financial sector from across the globe. Now, I'd like to introduce Fern, the OREX News Assistant Manager for Editorial. Thank you, Lily. Hello and Happy New Year. In this month's episode, we'll take a brief look at the top five largest losses from December 2022. All losses are reported in US dollars. We'll also focus on the rise and fall of the bankrupt cryptocurrency exchange FTX, looking to the ripple effects on the global crypto markets and the future of crypto. For this podcast, I'm joined by senior news analyst Natasha. Hello, Fern and news researcher Joseph. Over to you, Joseph, for December's top five. Thanks, Fern. In fifth spot is Russian Radio Tech Bank, whose former employees defrauded the institution out of $26 million. In fourth place, we have Academy Mortgage Corporation, who took the month's fourth largest loss when it agreed to pay $38.5 million to resolve allegations by the US Department of Justice that it violated the False Claims Act by improperly originating and underwriting mortgages insured by the Federal Housing Administration. In December's third largest loss, the UK Financial Conduct Authority fined Santander $131.6 million for serious and repeated failures in its anti-money laundering controls. Danske Bank suffered December's second largest loss, the Danish bank was fined $1.39 billion over anti-money laundering failures. December's largest loss is attributed to Wells Fargo. The US Consumer Financial Protection Bureau announced its largest ever fine of $1.7 billion against the bank over violations across many of the bank's largest product lines and widespread management failures in relation to automobile loans, mortgage loans and deposit accounts. Thank you, Joseph. That's great. Last December, we covered the FTX saga as a cyber event following reports claiming that the firm had suffered a hack in November 2022. At the time, the estimated value of the stolen digital assets reported in the media varied widely, from $400 million to $659 million. However, the timing of the reported hack raised eyebrows as on the same day of the alleged cyber incident, FTX filed for bankruptcy and its founder, Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF, resigned from his role. But before we dig deeper into FTX's collapse, I'll take you back to how at its peak, FTX and Bankman-Fried were jointly valued at $32 billion. In November 2017, Bankman-Fried founded a cryptocurrency trading firm called Alameda Research, and significantly, early in 2018, the price of Bitcoin was lower in America than in Japan and Korea. SBF took advantage of the difference in price in his favor 
and made between 10 and $30 million for Alameda. Then, based on this success, in April 2019, he founded his own cryptocurrency exchange, FTX. The meteoric rise of FTX was impressive, with high-profile acquisitions, a hefty marketing budget, promises of much higher returns than traditional banks, and mainstream celebrity endorsements. FTX's fall came out of nowhere. On the 2nd of December last year, Coindesk published an article raising concerns about Alameda's main asset being FTX's token, FTT. This was a problem because FTX was using FTT as collateral, which meant that Alameda's assets were tied to a risky and volatile token, raising worries about the real capital for both firms. Former Alameda's head of trading, Caroline Ellison, told a New York judge during a plea hearing that from 2019 to 2022, Alameda had access to, and I quote, an unlimited line of credit on FTX.com, and she knew that was wrong. She went on to say that FTX executives had implemented settings on Alameda's FTX.com account to maintain negative balances, and that she had understood that if Alameda's FTX's accounts had significant balances in any currency, it meant that Alameda was borrowing funds that FTX's customers had deposited. Ellison could face a maximum sentence of 110 years in prison for her role in FTX's fraud if found guilty. Bankman-Fried, on the other hand, always claimed that FTX and Alameda operated independently, and thanks to the positive image of altruism he had built and the perennial allure of easy money, his words were taken as gospel, until FTX collapsed and $32 billion of company money dropped to zero overnight. He pleaded not guilty to eight charges against him, and was released in December on a $250 million bail while investigations continue. So what went catastrophically wrong? Well, John Ray III was appointed to replace Bankman-Fried as CEO of FTX when the firm collapsed in November last year, and he certainly didn't mince his words in his testimony to the US Congress. He said that he had never seen, and I quote, such an utter failure of corporate controls at every level of an organization, from the lack of financial statements to a complete failure of any internal control or governance. And this is from someone who spent a career tackling large and vexing corporate failures involving allegations of criminal activity. Ray went on to say that Alameda had used client funds to engage in margin trading which exposed these funds to massive losses. He added that FTX's US arm was not operated independently, and this therefore made it necessary to place both entities into US bankruptcy to prevent a run on the bank at FTX US. Ray added that the cause of FTX's ultimate collapse was, and I quote again, the absolute concentration of control in the hands of a very small group of grossly inexperienced and unsophisticated individuals. The executives failed to implement virtually any of the systems or controls that are necessary for a company that is entrusted with other people's money or assets. 
However, there may be a glimmer of hope for some investors, as the Bahamian securities regulator had seized assets worth $3.5 billion from FTX, and it planned to return these to creditors. And on January the 15th, a judge overseeing proceedings gave permission for FTX to sell some of its assets to repay creditors. Yes, the possibility of getting some money back is definitely a small glimmer of hope for investors, following what US prosecutors are calling one of the biggest financial frauds in American history. The collapse of FTX shook the already fragile crypto markets and cemented what many experts had been warning for quite some time. Businesses need real assets to cover real liabilities. Former Barclays CEO Bob Diamond told the Financial Times that there was going to be a lot of good things which survived last year's crypto crash. He added, I can't think of anyone who doesn't believe that in the future, a digital version of the dollar for institutional and corporate use isn't going to happen and be far more efficient. And he continues, the optimist in me hopes that this is a catalyst for more effective and more focused regulation and development of areas such as stable coins and blockchain technology for onshore and approved ones. That's really interesting and perhaps another indication that despite the current turmoil, there may be a future for cryptocurrencies, particularly when traditional banks start to join the crypto space. For example, in November last year, the USPOT granted JP Morgan a trademark registration for a digital wallet with crypto features. This was despite JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon publicly declaring his skepticism of crypto tokens, calling them decentralized Ponzi schemes. However, Dimon is more positive about stable coins, saying there'd be nothing wrong with a stable coin, which is like a money market fund properly regulated. And regarding blockchain, he confirmed that JP Morgan is a big user of blockchain technology. Thank you so much for that, Natasha. For more in-depth details about this extraordinary story, including categories and the full taxonomy, go to orx.org. We'll add the link to it in the show notes. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to this month's podcast. If you'd like to know more about the top five losses, then please visit the Rx website, where you can find the top five losses for each month, as well as a range of op-risk reports and resources. You can also read the full digest for each of the stories discussed in this episode on the Rx website. Just search rx.org. Join us next time to hear next month's top five losses. Thank you. Thank you.